Uh, you can turn to chapter 1 of the book of Malachi. Last week, we sort of warmed up, right? We did our, our Bible calisthenics, going from warming up to sort of whatever a popular form of exercise is now, jazzercise this week. I know the kids love jazzercising. So we're going to really get into it this week, and we're going to, I want us to think about two of the reasons we went over last week for why we're going through this book. One was, uh, why Malachi? First reason, it's a prophet's job to sort of shake up God's people, shake them out of their slumber and back to God, and to his covenant with them. That's one of the reasons why Malachi. Second reason, well actually the last reason I gave last week was that Malachi contains and is organized by these raw but legitimate questions from people to God. So right away this morning we're going to have these two very real, very raw questions from God's people. One is explicit and one is implicit. The first one is, how have you loved me? And the implied question with that is, why me? Alright, so let's read this together. Malachi 1, 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, uh, Edom is kind of the lineage of Esau, if Edom says, we are shattered, we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Quick side note here before we finish this. You see these words like hate, angry of the Lord, and that probably jolts us a little bit. Uh, and I'm not saying this should all water down God's word, but it's not hate or anger in the sense of animosity. And there's various examples of this in God's word, in the, particularly in the Old Testament, that could give you. The best, though, in fact, Deuteronomy 23.7, God actually prohibits, he tells his people explicitly not to hate the Edomites, the people of Esau. Because they are your brethren. They are like your family. Alright, so certainly God wouldn't command something that he himself is not willing to follow. Alright, so it's a sense more of rejection. God is rejecting them. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, in this passage people of Israel are doubting your love. Doubting your love just as we often do, Lord. And I think this morning you give a unique answer and application for our lives, Lord, to how you've loved us and why us. So we pray this morning that you would show us that through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now most of us I think most of us only ask this sort of question one or two times in our lives. Uh, unless, unless you're like me and used to just embarrassing yourself frequently. That's sort of my life. But it's a question you ask when you're sort of in admiration. And so you ask someone, and how do I get what you have? 
But if you've asked this question, sometimes you notice you get a response back that's actually quite humble. People say, hey, look, it ain't what it appears. Right? It's not all that great what you see in my life. Katie and I, uh, my wife Katie and I, had a tough morning this week. Between my negligence on something and uh, trying to get the kids into the mom-mobile off to school, uh, I know it's hard to believe this, but we had an argument. All right, yes, your pastor argues, and we may even had two arguments that day. All right, I know, it's nuts, it's crazy, but I, we had this argument, I carried it with me into that morning. You know what I mean by that? You have an argument, you get into a fight with someone, you, you carry it into your day. <clears throat> After a breakfast appointment, I headed off to uh, the great and the wonderful Cafe Del Sol to get some work done. I was sitting there in line with my dollar bill, ready to pay for my bottle of water, um, because it's hard to imagine, I don't drink coffee. I know, it's crazy. I don't actually drink coffee. I'm one of only two living pastors. I think you don't drink coffee, but the other one is Jesus, so, you know, he's the pastor of our church, also, a senior pastor, so, you know, it's good company. That's pretty much a historical fact, he didn't drink coffee. <laughs> anyway, so as I wait in line, I'm sitting there in line, I notice this man in front of me uh, who is making a very complex coffee order, which I'm always amazed by, and his wife comes up this point and uh, he looks at her very lovingly and then she starts to order her coffee but he's able to turn to her at this point and say no honey you're not taking care of it and look at each other lovingly and she gives him a kiss and even though the the truth is that God has very much graced me with a wonderful spouse and uh, God has helped our marriage grow in leaps and bounds in low almost 10 years of marriage but I'm starting to believe some lies, all right, this morning. And, and, and I think, man, I wish, I wish our marriage was like that right now. So I go and I sit down. And the guy sits down next to me. And his, his wife goes off to the restroom for a minute. And so I decide, I'll just try to have a conversation with this guy. And like I said, willing to embarrass myself. So I said, hey, man, I think it's really cool to see how much you guys love each other. You know, I could use some of that. How do you guys do it? This guy, he's visibly surprised by the fact I'm saying this to him. And so he says, man, I think you have me confused with someone else. Right? The truth is, we're on vacation. And we're here because, man, at home, our marriage is struggling. I think you have me confused for someone else. Says God's people. While God says here in verse 2, I have loved you, his people must have been confused. God continued to build his people through one ancient brother named Jacob. And he built another people who were not his people, the Edomites, through his twin brother, Esau. But Jacob, who was apparently loved, suffered greatly. They suffered great devastation to their homeland in about 586 BC at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They were deported, most of whom would be slaves. All of this because they did not respond in obedience to God through this covenant, this contract he had made with them. 
Meanwhile, Esau slash Edom, the people who had come from Esau, who certainly didn't worship God, they remained intact. In fact, they prospered greatly as a result of Israel's loss. In fact, if you look at this up here, you'll see uh, Judea right here. All right? Basically, that's Judah. And below that, you see Edomia. That used to be part of Israel, part of Judah. But through this captivity, through most of Israel vacating the premises and going to Babylon, or most of Judah going to Babylon, Edom had actually picked up a good piece of property off the hands of the Israelites. So they prospered during Israel's suffering. How have you loved us? Right? How have you loved us? Look what's happened. Why are you comparing their fortune with our loss? Now this would have been doubly confusing, doubly confusing when we consider verse 3. Look at that with me if you would. I have laid waste, says the Lord, I have laid waste his, that's Edom's, hill country, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. This was a clear allusion to Jeremiah 9.11. Alright, now, why is that important? Jeremiah 9.11. Well, Jeremiah was a prophecy given before Israel went off to Babylon and was in captivity and deported. And it said, this, it said, this is gonna, what's going to happen because you're not following me. You're not responding to me. I love you. But you haven't responded in obedience. So this is what's going to happen to you. It's a prophecy. It's a prediction. And this is what Jeremiah 9.11 says. God says this. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Do you hear that? A clear illusion. Heap of ruins. A layer of jackals. Desolation. In other words, verse 3 is a clear allusion to Jeremiah 9.11. When you spend 40 years in exile, you certainly become familiar with the prophecies about why you're in this predicament. Your elders are talking about it. People are looking at the Bible. Why is this happening? And they would have run across Jeremiah 9.11. And hearing it again, many years later, trying to rebuild their country, they would have thought, yeah, uh, God, I think that you applied that prophecy to us. I <laughs> uh, think you got us confused. Now you're applying it to these other people. We're the ones in trouble. But I think, friends, this is actually where we get the key to this question of how have you loved me? Because God does discipline and punish people for our rebellion. And this often results in hardship and suffering. The difference, here's the big key, the difference is for God's people that his punishment is always for redemptive purposes. Judah slash Israel return to Yahweh, to God in the midst of punishment. Hosea 6.1 comes to mind where Hosea, another prophet, says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. His purposes are for redemption. His purposes are for healing. His purposes are to bring us closer to him. God 
brought them back to restore towns. Brought them back from captivity to restore towns, to fortify the wall of their capital city, and to rebuild their holy temple. You see that? That's healing that's going on here. And while enduring punishment, you draw near to him. You're familiar with this, right? Suffering, punishment, hardship, draw near to God. And then he restores them in their land. In other words, their punishment always had some redemptive purpose. Esau and Edom would be punished, and as we saw, basically through the same prophecy. Right? Desolation, jackals, your land is going to be untenable for farming. Sure enough, the Nabataean Arabs would gradually force the Edomites from their homeland. And being a semi-nomadic people, these Nabataeans allowed the cities of Edom to dilapidate into ruin while their herds sort of overgrazed and destroyed what was previously arable land, what was previously farmable land. The Edomites tried to rebuild. But as promised here in verse 4, right? If you look at verse 4, God frustrated that attempt when in 185 B.C., a Jewish man named Judas Maccabeus crushed a last-ditch rebellion by the people of Edom. And so the prophecy, God's word, was fulfilled. For those not God's people, his punishment is solely for glorifying purposes. In other words, there's not a redemptive purpose so much as there is a glor- only a glorifying purpose. Romans 9.17 comes to mind where Paul says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Egypt, not God's people. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If you remember Pharaoh's fate, it was not a redemptive fate. But God was still glorified. Friends, this is actually quite brilliant. By applying the same prophecy, first to his own people, to God's own people, and then to not his people, we see that suffering resulting from divine punishment may look the same. But God says, in my family, I use it for redemptive purposes. It may look the same, but I use it to grow you, to move you closer to me, to make you more like me. Do you see that? Same prophecy, same kinds of punishment, different purposes. How have you loved me? This is an interesting application here we see in these verses. Because really, what God's telling us here in Malachi is to compare the purposes and results of your discipline slash punishment Versus those outside of God's family. Through the cross, Jesus endured eternal punishment so that by faith we are adopted into the Father's family. We are now His sons and daughters if you trust in Christ. So that means every act of punishment or discipline is from a Father. And so then it's for our good. You can read more about that in Hebrews chapter 12. But there's this fruit that results from that, from that discipline, that punishment. 
trust, patience, sense of peace, Christ-likeness. For the Esau's of the world, even in prosperity, they neither grow nor produce fruit that actually lasts. And then worst of all, when trouble comes, there is no hope. God actually calls us to compare. But the object of comparison is often misplaced. So in these verses, we see that God is actually making comparisons. Look at these people. Look at the fruit of their lives. The problem is the object of our comparison is often misplaced. What do I mean by that? Those who believe in Christ too often compare themselves to others who believe in Christ. That's where we often get into trouble. We start to compare gifts and talents that God's given us. Well, that person has an outgoing personality. Man, they can share the gospel. Woo! We uh, look at someone's talent for playing an instrument or for singing. People listen when that guy speaks. I wish I had that person's compassion or that person's influence. Right? We compare also our respective relationships to God. Man, he's just acting out of pride. Man, they're so holier than thou. Or, I wish they weren't so loud about their faith, says the humble, pious Christian who continually watches reruns of Touched by an Angel. Right? It's that sort of person. On the other end, you have that believer who says, man, that Christian's way too sheltered, too pure. They're very they're legalistic, out of touch, says the oh-so-relevant Christian who makes it a point to keep up with trends, know everything about pop culture, and constantly has his Facebook page open, ready for action, right? And so we compare our relationships with God. And what happens is, form these cracks of pride and jealousy that start to make their way through the foundation of God's people, of his church, and results in what? Splitting, faction, dissension. We should spend more time comparing the fruits and results of our lives. Notice, not just comparing ourselves with someone else. I'm better than you. No, the fruit and results from our lives that God produces with those who do not yet believe in him. Three years after trusting my life to Christ, I was walking in the same place where I had come to faith in him. And I was considering my own salvation as I walked on what was for me very hallowed ground. And I was thinking about God's choosing me. Why am I Jacob? And I started to enter into my own comparison. My brother, who at the time had not trusted his life to Christ, was the object of my comparison. My older brother. And I was just overwhelmed with the question, why would you choose me over my brother? My brother is 10 years older than me, was a firstborn. He's a hard worker. I remember saying, Father, he has done more with the brains and skills you've given him than I have. He's an upright guy, a model citizen, and a far more selfless dad than I would ever be. So why me? Why not choose him? I thought about this. I rolled it over my mind. I don't know if you've been there before, but 
ultimately, I ended by just lifting my hands and saying, thanks be to you, Lord. If I can do nothing else. And I started considering at the end of that time as I was on a walk, and I considered the fruit of our lives. The fruit of my life was abundant, and it was all from the Lord. It was God's grace. My brother had many things. Successful doctor, well-known, had a reputation, money, great guy, many things. He simply didn't have the trust, contentment, and the peace that I was given. I'm thankful that my brother noticed. On one vulnerable day, he had one of those moments. Man, I wish I had what you had. What you have. I wish I had what you have. And I'm thankful to report that years later, my brother did trust his life to Christ. But you see my point here. You look around, you can only be thankful what God has done in you. It's not up to you. And as was the case with Judah, or Jacob, sorry, and Esau, was the case with the story of my brother and I, it's inevitable to ask that question along with, how have you loved me, Lord? Why me? So I want to look at that question as well. Why me? Verse 2. God says, I have loved you. This love is a sovereign and unconditional love. What do I mean by sovereign? It means what it says. God is king. And as king of the universe, it is his will. It is up to him to show that love. Not up to us. And God hammers home this point three times in the example of Esau and Jacob. Alright? Let's look at this. Three times. If you know this story of Esau and Jacob, you might be familiar. Number one, God's love did not take into account the birthright priority of Esau. As we see in Genesis 25. Now Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the fathers of the faith. They were the patriarchs. They were the dudes through whom God made it all happen. Isaac and Rebekah, they had twins. First to come out was Esau. But just behind him, right behind in second place, grabbing onto his ankle, he had Jacob. Now from the beginning in the Hebrew tradition, firstborn was given the birthright. Meaning that, that this son would receive special favor. And when dad died, this son would become the head of the family. But God chose to reverse things. And upon Isaac's deathbed, Jacob, the younger son, receives his dad's birthright instead of Esau. Jacob's descendants become Israelites and Esau's descendants become Edomites. Second thing here, God's love did not take into account the feelings and attitudes of the parents. Jacob's dad... Isaac loved Esau. That was his boy. He was an outdoorsman. He was a game hunter. Right? He would have been on the Discovery Channel doing his thing. 
right? Like Mr. Grills out there. This was his guy, but it's not God's guy. God chose Jacob. God's love did not take into account the moral imperfections of a guy like Jacob. We also learned that in Genesis 25. Jacob spent many of his days deceiving and swindling. In fact, the way Jacob gets his birthright is by tricking his brother into giving it to him. In fact, it says something about God's sovereignty and human responsibility coming together to work, but that's another story. But he tricks his brother into getting the birthright. Does God take that into account, moral imperfection? No, he doesn't in terms of his choosing Jacob. How does this relate to our lives? How does this kind of sovereign, unconditional love relate to us? Three ways. Number one, God doesn't love us because of who we are. I don't want you to misunderstand this. I don't mean by that he doesn't love the unique way in which he's made you or his gifts and talents he's put in you. It's that sense of privilege. That sense of innate, I am who I am, thus God must love me. Let's look at Deuteronomy six or Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7, where God says to his people, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, strategically, it wasn't wise, God saying, for me to choose you, right? For military strength purposes, for world domination, I would not be choosing you guys. In a game of risk, you don't want Israel, all right? You see, in the ancient Near East, people put, nations put much identity in numbers. Strength in numbers. Why do you think? Strength in numbers. Why would you have a lot of people? Military. Power, military strength. Now when there is a conflict, there occasionally there are wars, but more often you see things like trade embargoes, right? Behind the scene deals, exchanging of commodities. Then it was, you have commodity. I want commodity. Try to prevent me from taking commodity, right? <laughs> Basically they spoke like cavemen, I guess. <laughs> Have you ever thought about this, right? Man, God loves me because, hey, it's me. It's Nico Mellet, or it's Azel K, or it's, it's Wes. It's me. Have you ever thought this? Like, I come from this family. I was christened, and I grew up in this church. I am this person. So, yeah, God loves me. It's kind of a subtle thought. It's, it's not something you consciously think, but it's kind of in the back of your head. Yeah, it's me. Of course God loves me. It's Ryan Oschlager. All right, hey. I'm a pastor. Of course God loves me. He doesn't love us for those reasons. Number two, he doesn't love us because we are willingly desirous to be in a relationship with him. All right? Here, Romans 9 10 through 16. Let's read this. Paul says this, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Okay? Isaac and Rebekah have two kids. 
Esau, Jacob. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Quoting Malachi. Next verse. But what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Here's the conclusion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see that? In other words, you can say, say Lord, I'm here. I'm willing. Let's do this thing. But it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Now, readiness and willingness might be evidence that God loves you. And I'm ready and willing to do that. might be evidence that God loves you, but that's not the reason why he loves you. Does that make sense? Thirdly, he doesn't love us because of what we do for him. Paul says this to Titus, Titus 3, 3 through 5. He says, about at one time... We too are foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. He's having them remember the way their lives used to be before Jesus. He says, we know we lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. But then the kindness and love of God our Savior appear. He saved us, notice, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. Not because of stuff you've done, but because of his mercy. But how often we fail into that trap, don't we? Ah, I'm doing better, God. I'm finally on the right track. So you must love me more. You must care for me more. I must be more your son or daughter. Or we act that way. Most people who have yet to trust their lives to Christ have the idea that to get right with God, you've got to do good deeds. You've got to follow what the Bible says. You've got to go to church. You've got to not cheat on your spouse. Right? That's the way you get right with God. Where do they get that idea? Christians! Right? Christians. Me too. We're usually our own worst enemies when it comes to the gospel of grace. Our lives are to be lived out by trust and faith that he loves and forgives us. He loves and forgives us. And then in response, we want to obey him. He doesn't love us because we obey him. He loves us because he's just merciful and loving. That's the kind of God he is. How are you with that? How are you with the fact that God loves you because of nothing you've done? Because of nothing you desired? Because of nothing of who you are? But simply because God's very person is radically loving and radically merciful. How are you really with this? That's hard. It's something we have to swallow. Right? How are you with this? Does it make you antsy, uncomfortable, maybe feeling less than a full Christian 
Or does it simply leave you in awe of the radical mercy of God through Jesus Christ? That he would pursue us and love us simply because he is loving. I spoke at uh, the Grace Christian Academy this week. I had the privilege of speaking there at their chapel. And by the topic I was given was 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you know this verse, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, if anyone has trusted Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You become a new person when you trust Christ. I've read this verse a hundred times, all right? Not just because I'm a pastor, but partly because of that. And, and I missed the command, though. Every time I've read this, I missed the command. Did you know there's a command in this verse? I've always thought it was just a description of who we are in Christ. But there's a command. Did you hear it? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Paul is actually telling people, Behold this. Be surprised. Be shocked. Be in awe that God has got you. He picked you and made you into something new, something glorious, something awesome. We miss that, don't we? Behold. Be shocked. Be surprised of the God of the universe. Be in awe and being thankful. At age five, John Gilbert was diagnosed with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a genetic progressive debilitating disease. And at age 25, John would die from that disease. Every year, John lost something. One year, he lost his ability to run. The next year, lost his ability to walk straight. So he can no longer play with his friends. Most of his life, John was mistreated and picked on and no one stood up for him. But not always. John, you see, was invited to a number of special functions, including one massive, prominent uh, auction. It was a national dinner auction. And when this auction began, one item in particular... One item caught John's attention. It was a basketball signed by the players of the Sacramento Kings, who are a professional, U.S. professional basketball team. John so desperately desired that ball that when it came up for bid, he felt his hand go up into the air. Not having enough funds, though, to participate, his mom had to lower it back down. Watching the bidding go up and up, it rose to an amount that was astonishing compared to the value of the ball and especially compared to the other items in the auction. Finally, a man made a bid that no one else could touch. No one else could match the bid. And he went up, he won the prize, and he walked to the front He claimed the basketball. But instead of going back to his seat, he walked across the room and placed it into the thin 
hands of a small boy who desperately wanted it. Man put the ball into the hands that would never dribble it down a court, never pass it to a teammate. Nevertheless, hands that would cherish it as long as he lived. One onlooker noted that it took me a moment to realize what this man had done. I remember hearing gasps all over the room and then thunderous applause and weeping eyes. He said, to this day, I am amazed. And he asked a question. Have you ever been given a gift that you could never have gotten for yourself? What was your response? If God, through Jesus, has decided to choose to give you the gift of salvation which you can never have gotten on your own, which you never have claimed because of who you are or obtained because you are willing. I hope your response is one of awe and thanksgiving. If you're listening today and you're wondering, has God picked me? And you're unsure if that's you. I believe God has you here today or has you tuning in for a reason. In fact, I spent an hour praying for you this morning. I believe God is pursuing your heart to become part of his family through his rescuer, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sang earlier that we are desperate for you. Lord, we read of this boy, we hear of this boy, John, and Lord, we are in our hearts in such a condition, dying, Lord, crippled, certainly no better than he. But through Jesus, you stoop down, Father, you stoop down to hand us a gift we could never have gotten on our own. You pursue us when we were lifeless. All out of your mercy. Lord, I pray that the response of our heart today, Lord, as we continue to worship you all this week, Lord, all of our lives would be one of awe and thanksgiving. Why me, Lord? Why me? But when we say it, Lord, may it be in awe of you. Because we know it's only out of your mercy. And when we doubt, Lord, gosh, God, how have you really loved us? Help us look at what you've done in our lives and the fruit you've produced, even in hard times, and give thanksgiving to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.